Well, Jerry's out of town today, so you got me, but I'm looking forward to being here for several reasons. Uh, one of those reasons is we continue today on James, and it's a great chapter. It's chapter two in James. Uh, James can be pretty challenging, and so I think this passage today is both encouraging and also a little challenging. So let's dive right into James chapter 2, working out our faith, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, again, we thank you for this opportunity to be here, to sing together, to pray together, to fellowship together as family, and help us now to learn from you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we study James be an honor to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, James starts talking uh, about favoritism and showing favorite to those who are rich by giving them the best seats in the house. Now, I had a different thought of that when I was looking at that this week. A couple of times when I feel like I've been given the best seats in the house because I don't always get those and had a lot of fun. So one of those times, I remember back, I was, a, I was a young guy. I think it was 1984. I was doing a little research on it. It was at the NBA All-Star Game. And my dad and I, we lived in Dallas, and my dad was a high school basketball coach, and someone gave us tickets to the All-Star Game. And they weren't just any tickets. They were down low center court. They were fantastic tickets. They were so good that sitting behind us was Ron Meyer, who, who at one time coached the Colts and at that time was coaching the New England Patriots, and Craig James, who, is, who was his star running back. And the, the uh, national TV came and stood right by us and kind of interviewed them on live TV over my shoulder. So I was leaning to my left to try to get my shoulder on TV, you know, during that time. I don't know if that part was true, but it was pretty cool. So those were great seats. Then more recently, uh, Claire and I were given tickets several years ago. 
when Butler played Duke in the national championship basketball game here in Indianapolis at Lucas Oil Stadium. And again, they were fantastic seats. And we were walking down there. We're like, can't believe how good these seats are. Again, similar story. They were so good that we get there and sitting right behind us is Grant Hill, who was a superstar at Duke and won a national championship there, was a star in the NBA, is now on television. So Claire and I cheering for Butler and Grant Hill cheering for Duke. We kept standing up to try to block his view, you know, so, okay, maybe not really, but we were cheering for Butler and he was cheering for Duke. Unfortunately, Duke won, as as most of us know. But I was so glad to have those best seats in the house. Um, English theologian N.T. Wright, who we've talked about here before, talks about a different kind of story where he was given the best seats in the house and he didn't feel so good about that. He's an Anglican bishop, and one Easter Sunday back in England, he went to church, and he went by himself, I think, and he said he got there early. He thought it was early enough to, to get in and maybe get, get in line for a seat somewhere, but when he got there, alas, there were very long lines to get into the sanctuary. So he's standing in line, and he said a prominent uh, citizen of the city came up to him and recognized him as a bishop. And kind of pulled him by the arm and said, follow me. So he did, and he was glad to be recognized. And so they, they went around, and the man led him to the front where he quietly spoke to an usher who let them in and led them to the very front row to sit in the front of the sanctuary for worship. And N.T. Wright goes on to say, even though it was Easter and I was sitting up front, I almost could not worship that day because I continued to think about James chapter 2 and how favoritism had been shown to me because of who I was. We are to learn today that favoritism is forbidden. I think that's a good way to think about it. Favoritism is forbidden. James says that as Christians, we are not to play favorites. And his example is the rich and the poor. And I think it can be other ways as well, but this is a good way to think about the rich and the poor. And I think it's a temptation for me as I examine myself and my own heart this week and as we think about just being human, it can be tempting to want to know the person who might have a little bit of fame or fortune or maybe who has something that might help us. It's tempting to want to spend time with them, maybe the person who's more popular or outgoing or fun. And it, on the other hand, it can be tempting to shy away from the person who maybe stands along the wall, or the person who doesn't have anything to offer us, maybe the person who is poor in spirit or who poor is, is poor in other ways. It can be tempting to shy away from those people. But James says again to us and to those early Christians not to play favorites. In fact, in the second part of this passage, he says to treat people with mercy and love. Don't give the well-dressed or the rich the best seats in the house. Well, here at ZBC, I was thinking about how does this relate in, in, in ZBC. I think one of the ways it might is uh, with our covenant children. So we love our covenant children. We love our kids that are here. We love our teenagers that are here. They're really valuable to us. But being a father of teenagers, I know that it can be tough at times to be a teenager. Actually, I think it in some ways can be more difficult today than it was when I was a teen back in the 1980s. I think in some ways because of the social media and the pressure that comes with one, that, that do, do people like the things that you post or things like that. But even back in the dark ages when I was a teen, <clears throat> it wasn't always easy as well. And I remember I kind of found my niche 
by playing high school basketball, and that was a great place for me to fit in. I also remember being very studious. I liked to study a lot. Now, others would say I was nerdy, okay? But I'm going to kind of stand on that I was studious. How about that? So, you know, okay, I'll admit I'm going to own that I was probably a little nerdy as well. But I remember still being a teen and not always um, sure of myself, a little awkward at times. And it's a time when you're trying to kind of find your identity and, and who you are and who likes you. Who are your real friends? Where do you uh, fit in? <clears throat> a lot of the adults in my life were uh, authority figures, teachers, principals, um, coaches, my parents, my parents' friends, and they were great people, but still there was a distance in relating to them, except for one young man <clears throat> who was my youth pastor named Murray, and I've mentioned him before, but I still remember the day we were playing basketball at the high school gym. It was probably in summertime. Uh, Because in summertime, the gym was open, but they didn't turn on the air conditioners to save money. And this is Texas in the summer. So we get very hot and sweaty playing basketball. And we'd go outside, actually, because outside was cooler than in the gym. And I remember standing out on the front steps of the school building where I went to high school. And Murray knew we were there. And so it wasn't, we thought maybe it was a coincidence, but it wasn't. He came by, and he he got there at at the time when we were out front standing on the school steps, and he knew me, and he knew a lot of the guys. And I remember Murray was different uh, because Murray knew my name. He treated me with kindness. He cared for me. He was able to joke around with us. He truly loved us, um, and he accepted us. And then we would go to church. Some of us who went to that church would go to church on Sunday, and then he would tell us about Jesus. And I know as about a 16-year-old boy or so, I made the connection. I knew Murray loved Jesus, and I knew he worked for the church, so I knew he represented Jesus. And if Murray was kind and accepting, and he knew my name, and he cared for me, then Jesus must too. Jesus must be accepting and kind and caring and loving, and Jesus must know my name as well. And there's great power in that. And so I think instead of thinking about, you know, how do I not play favorites, Can we look at it in the way of being like Jesus and treating people the way that Jesus treats us and and treats each of us? It's a great recipe for us to think about. James also says to love your neighbor as yourself, and certainly this comes from Jesus. It also comes from the Old Testament, from the Shema, which faithful Jews would recite every day, which would begin with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus adds, The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And I think really James gives this as a remedy to show this love and mercy and to love your neighbor as yourself as a remedy for favoritism. He says in verse 5, he's very serious about it. He says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. And he's speaking to them as family when he says beloved and says his brothers and sisters. He wants us um, as family, and, and, and even us as a ZPC family, as a church family, to reach out not to show favoritism, to love others, and to ask questions. How will we really do this? How will we love our neighbors? How will we not show partiality? We can do it the way Jesus did. And I think here's a couple of simple steps to begin. We can begin by asking Jesus to change our hearts and our minds Asking Jesus to change our hearts to feel for others 
the way that Jesus felt, to change our hearts, to feel for others the way that Jesus felt for them, to ask Jesus to help change our minds, to use the Holy Spirit to come into us, to change our minds, to see people the way that Jesus did. And Liz Todd at the 9 a.m. hour prayed, and she said, to hear people with holy hearing to see and to hear others in the way that God sees them. And I will tell you, I fail often at this when I'm lazy or tired or whatever. But in our best of times, can we begin to see, to, to feel, to hear, to listen to people the way that Jesus does? One of the questions in our home groups this week, which is in your bulletin, you don't need to look at it now, but... One of the kind of sub-questions is, does God show favoritism? I want to give you a little hint. The answer, I think, is no. God does not show favoritism. However, this is kind of why we ask the question. In verse 5, it seems to be that God shows some favor to the poor. Uh, when he says the poor have two things coming to them. First, they get to be rich in faith. The poor get to be rich in faith. And second... They get to be heirs of the kingdom. They get to inherit the kingdom of God, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And this echoes, James echoes what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And as I thought about that this week, I think sometimes when we, when we feel, in a sense, rich in different ways, when you feel you have everything, you feel you don't need God. But when you need everything, you draw close to God. When you feel you have everything, oftentimes it doesn't feel there's a need for God. But when you need everything, you realize you need God. And there's, a great, there's that great need for that. And so I think that's the way that those who are poor, whether it's poor in spirit or poor in material ways, can have a sense of be rich in faith when they turn to God in desperation. We talked a little bit about this a couple of weeks ago in James chapter 1 where it says, uh, be joyful in your trials and in testing and in temptations because, <clears throat> because in those things, um, that is how we draw close to God, through persevering through those things. And I'm glad to be speaking on this day when we have the mission fair, when we have Mission Possible in the gym. And I ask you again to go check out those booths. If you have a few minutes after the service, they are doing God's work. And one of the tables that's near and dear to me is Faith Ministry. So Faith Ministry is on the Texas-Mexico border. I've talked about it before, but they reach some of the poorest of the poor. That's one of their goals on the Mexico side of the Texas-Mexico border. And they do a couple of things well, but they're subtle. And I've gone enough that I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not dumb, so I've picked up on some things how they do things. One of the things they do well, uh, especially because they do a lot of house construction, is they don't ask us as rich Americans to come in and just build houses for the poor Mexicans. Instead, they have a system in the way that they build houses. So they have trained uh, supervisors and construction guys that come alongside every work group that comes in. Because I'll tell you, I'm bad at construction. I've done this for years and years. I'm just now kind of getting at some of the things they teach me. But uh, they come in and they train us, and they're good at what they do. So they do it in a way that doesn't, it's not condescending to us or doesn't make us feel bad because we're not good at this. They come in and train us to, to mix cement and tie rebar and how to lay block in a way so it's flat and straight so it doesn't bow out and make a wall that's going to fall down. And so they train us how to do construction. Then they have volunteers that are also wanting to have houses, and they come alongside us 
and we build houses together. So when you go there, we're volunteers coming from the U.S. They have volunteers from there in Reynosa, Mexico, and you work side by side. And after four or five days of working side by side, you sense truly that you are sisters and brothers in Christ and you feel closer to them, a camaraderie from accomplishing a task together, and you feel more unified, more a sense of oneness. And it's done very subtly, but done very well. So there's not this divide between us who oftentimes are the rich Americans and for many of them who are some of the poorest of the poor in Reynosa. When we were there last time, they had a beautiful and simple retirement uh, ceremony for Ezekiel. There's a picture of Ezekiel up here. He was one of the very first employees of faith ministry. He worked tirelessly in construction as one of those supervisors for around 25 years until this last year where he was at retirement age and he really couldn't do that anymore. So they had a very simple ceremony where several Americans, there was our large work group and another large work group was there, was there that had known Ezekiel for many years and some other Americans were there as well. And several of them got up and talked about him, how, they, how he had trained them to mix cement or lay block or tie rebar and how thankful they were for him. And after coming for five years or 10 years or 15 years and spending time with Ezekiel, that they truly considered him a friend and a brother in Christ, and in some ways, a teacher of them. So here's Ezekiel, who in the world's eyes, in many eyes, would be a poor man living in Reynosa, Mexico. But Ezekiel is rich. He is rich in faith. He is rich in families. We got to meet some of his family. He's rich in friends, and he is rich in hard work, respect, and integrity. God lifts up the poor and the ordinary. And God uses the poor and the ordinary to do his work. Uh, in a more recent book called 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, he talks about how Jesus, with his disciples, his specific disciples, the 12, chose young men, fishermen, and a tax collector named Matthew to be his closest followers. He says this about them. From our human perspective, the propagation of the gospel and the foundation of the church, these are important things, right? The, the furthering of the gospel and the foundation of the church hinged entirely on 12 men whose most outstanding characteristic was their ordinariness, that they were ordinary. They were regular guys that Jesus chose. President Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, God must love the common people because he made so many of them. Right? I don't know about you, but I'm pretty common. I feel that way a lot of times. God must love the common people because he made so many of them. God doesn't often choose the popular or the powerful to do his work. He chooses the ordinary and the common, the unexpected, the young, the poor, to be rich in faith and to do his work. God chose two unmarried teens, Mary and Joseph, to be the future parents of Jesus. God chose Jacob, who we studied his life recently, who lied and manipulated to become the father of Israel. Jesus forgave the woman caught in adultery. Jesus included the woman at the well who came there alone. Jesus chose Peter, the tough, outspoken fisherman, to be the leader of the church. Jesus chose Zacchaeus, the cheating tax collector, to go to his house and to share a meal. Jesus healed those who were blind, who couldn't speak who were paralyzed, and people who had to beg for money. Jesus touched the leper, 
and healed him. And we can too. Barbara Bush, in another sense, touched lepers as well. And she died this week. The former first lady died this week. And her service was, I believe, yesterday. I think they were expecting 1,500 people at her service. And several thousand came to pay their respects. And there was an article in the Houston Chronicle along with this picture that you see on the screens of the first lady, Barbara Bush, when she, when her husband was in the Oval Office. And this is a photo by Paul Brandis. And the picture is Barbara Bush holding a, two-year, uh, holding a baby while a two-year-old child here in the foreground is, is taking a picture on a camera of her holding the baby. Now, the location in this picture was at a Washington, D.C. area hospice, get that, a, a hospice for children with AIDS. These are two babies with AIDS. And this was at a time when nothing could be done for those with the disease. They basically had a death sentence. And it was also at a time in the, around the late 80s, around 1988, 89, 90, around that time, when many were worried about merely touching someone with the AIDS illness uh, could contract it, or could get the illness. And the First Lady was treating these children as if they were her own grandchildren. Along the way, Mrs. Bush also understood that it wasn't just the smallest, most innocent victims of the AIDS epidemic who deserved love. And a short time later, at a charity home uh, as well, she met a man named Lou Tesconi who was volunteering there. Now, Lou Tesconi also had AIDS, and he saw the value of volunteering and caring for others who had the disease. He was able to meet Mrs. Bush there, and during a behind-the-scenes meeting, uh, he told the First Lady this. He said, Mrs. Bush, it's a fantastic thing that you were holding these babies with AIDS, but the country sees them as innocent and sees the rest of us with AIDS as guilty. The whole suffering AIDS community needs a collective embrace from you today. Just then, Mrs. Bush walked over and hugged Tesconi, and later at a public press conference, she repeated the gesture in front of reporters, embracing a gay man with AIDS for the world to see. Two years later, Lou Tesconi was dying in a hospital when he received a letter from Mrs. Bush. She told Lou Tesconi that even though he was dying, he should know that his life mattered. The volunteer work that he did was a great example for those to follow. Mrs. Bush also wrote in her own 1994 memoir about this encounter. She said, I especially remember a young man who told us that he had been asked to leave his church studies when it was discovered that he had AIDS. His parents had disowned him, and he said he longed to be hugged again by his mother. A poor substitute, I hugged that darling young man and did it again in front of the cameras. But what he really needed was family. Folks, we are family. We are the church family. We are the family of God. And God calls us, maybe not to be Barbara Bush or to hug someone who has a great illness, but to live for him, to fight against the temptation at times, maybe to play favorites with someone that is like us, who is more attractive to us that we might want to spend time with, to go out of our way and out of our comfort zones to spend time with that person maybe who needs us, that we could be Jesus to like that young man was on the steps of my high school all those years ago. God calls us to pray and to ask God to see people the way that Jesus sees them, to look at them as God's children, made in his image, not rich or poor, 
Jesus healed the sick. He touched the leper. He forgave the sinner. Jesus ate with tax collectors. And through people like our missionaries and our mission agencies today, many of whom are in the the gym, he told people and showed people the love of Jesus. And by that, I mean through each of you and through those groups there, Jesus continues today to do his work. Jesus builds houses for those who need them through Habitat for Humanity or the Fuller Center for Housing or through Faith Ministry. Jesus gives people the good news through missionaries to Romania or the Brazil Great Banquet or Tunisia or Mongolia or Haiti or Thailand or Egypt who are all represented in our gym. Jesus gives food to the hungry through the food pantry, through shepherd totes that many of you fill. Jesus cares for our children through the villages, through Youth for Christ, through Straight Up. Jesus finds places for the homeless to sleep, like Wheeler Mission or Interfaith Hospitality Network. James tells us what we can do. He says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Listen with holy hearing. We can look for that person around us that we should show love and mercy to the way that Jesus does. Not to show favoritism, but to care for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. James and Jesus challenge us to reach out to those who can't offer anything in return to love our neighbor. And it doesn't need to be on a mission trip or maybe a local mission agency. It can be to to the clerk at the grocery store, the one who bags your groceries. It can be to the person who takes your money at the gas station, to the server at the restaurant, to the person that you work with at your place of work, that you know that something's going on in their family, and you might be there to say a kind and good work. Someone in your immediate family or extended family who needs you to reach out to them with a good word or with a prayer or a phone call. It does not have to be complicated, but we are called to love our neighbor, not to show favoritism, but instead to show the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, desiring nothing in return. Let us pray. Most loving God, we give you thanks, and we ask you to help us even this week, Lord, to reach out to someone, to be encouraged, um, to find someone that desires nothing, that, that we desire nothing in return, that we could have a chance encounter or maybe an intentional encounter where we could reach out to love our neighbor, to show mercy and love, to see someone the way that you see them and to spend time with them with some laughter, with love, with care in some way, in a unique way that you call each of us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.